All right. Well, we've, uh, we've been talking for the last four weeks about this whole concept of having difficult conversations. And so we've really sort of reached the end of that journey. Um, but before moving on to kind of this fifth topic, I thought it might be a good idea just to recap sort of where we've been. So it kind of helps understand, uh, everybody to understand sort of what we've talked about. So started out um, really by noting that there is this huge number of issues that, anymore, that, that seem to create disunity, you know, things that we tend to have conversations about, because like maybe social issues such as abortion, um, war, violence, inequality, just a couple that uh, we've, we've talked about. And the very first week, I noted that in a time like this, where we've got this sort of this shift going on culturally, the church really faces a challenge. And the challenge is, or the choice perhaps, is that we can either reflect the divisions that are going on in the world around us, or do we challenge that, do we transcend, and then do we overcome all of that that's going on? So what that comes down to is, do we, do we run away from having hard conversations? Or do we believe in the unifying power of the Holy Spirit to allow and help us to actually find our way through them so that we can you know, communicate with, uh, with others? And I, I think, um, as I said, Jesus prayed this prayer for unity that's noted in the Gospel of John that I think gives us some insight into that. And he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. So, we have Jesus praying for unity, for our unity, okay? And so I think what that means is we all have to learn how to have these difficult conversations. But to do them in love and to bring a thoughtful perspective to some very challenging topics. But I, the other question that I sort of asked when all this was going on is, well, how do we do that when our emotions are running so high, right? Because these are all hot-button issues that you know, people tend to not be neutral on. <laughs> You're either very strong one way or the other. Uh, so how do we do that when those emotions are running so high and perhaps when our own values are challenged? Right? Because these are issues that, that sometimes touch upon things that we, we, we value. And so when that happens, it's like, okay, how do we navigate this? Um, but we have to be able to do that because in this, this polarizing world that we're living in right now, the ability to have these conversations um, that will ultimately bring life to both parties involved is going to be an increasingly important virtue for us to, to, to show and to have as a skill for many years to come. And really, regardless of whatever the topic is, we want to bring to that moment this Jesus-following approach that leads to a life-changing conversation. 
So we began that very first week by starting to look at some scriptural themes that would really help us as we moved through this, this uh, terrain of having these kinds of conversations with people that are, that are not easy to have, but while still maintaining the unity that Jesus prayed about and would want us to have. So I said at the beginning there were five of these themes that we were going to look at. And so the first one was this, God has all truth, but we do not have perfect understanding of it. And so out of that particular affirmation, we developed several points. First is that only God knows the whole truth, right? Only God knows the whole truth. Second was that God reveals the truth and we, it's up to us to interpret it. And third, we must approach the truth with humility. And sort of the example we used there, this idea about how God reveals truth and we must interpret it, I pointed to a number of occasions throughout history where people believing that they were honestly and faithfully interpreting scripture did some horrible things in God's name. Um, and still are, yeah, in, in many cases. Uh, so... Remembering that that has happened ought to be uh, a, a key to helping us continue to have that humility that we just don't know all the truth, right? That we've got to always approach it with that in mind. Second, we said that being loving is as important as being right. Okay? Now, we did say that being right does matter. I mean, it's important to be right in what you're talking about. But being loving also matters. And so if we keep our orientation to Jesus, who is love, then that will help us sort of maintain that loving attitude even when we're having these conversations. Okay. Third, we talked about this. We said the spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible. You see, unity is a goal. Unity is not a given. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And so I said that it's oftentimes it's helpful to ask this question. If you're in the midst of having one of these discussions with someone, hopefully it stays at that level of discussion, right? It doesn't um, elevate or escalate into something a little sharper. But asking this question, what difference does this disagreement make in our practical day-to-day -day relationship and ministry? So thinking about it from that standpoint, and again, also almost going back to the one before about where it's more important to be loving oftentimes than it is to be right. Then last week, we talked about this, that we can find our identity in Christ, not in our belief systems, right? What you believe is not who you are, just as what you do for a living is not who you are, right? Pointed out to the fact that so oftentimes, you know, when you introduce yourself, that's a question, if we've just never met someone, that we naturally ask. We say, so what do you do for a living? And the response often comes back, I am a fireman, I'm an engineer, I'm a nurse, whatever. Well, no, you am not, 
<laughs> you are a beloved son or daughter of the king that, that does that job for a living, okay? But that's not who you are, just as the belief systems that you have don't define you either. And so what we kind of drew out of that conversation was the idea that um, we all need to know what our limits are, right? When we're getting in, into one of these conversations, um, sort of understanding, okay, this has probably gone as far as I can go with it before I start to just, like, lose my cool or whatever. So maybe I just need to take a step back because it's better to maintain this friendship than it is to have this argument, right? Uh, we also need people who can lovingly support us. Now, these are not people that just automatically agree with everything we think or say, but people who will support us no matter what we think or say, and will, when necessary, lovingly bring correction to that. And then finally, we can all identify with, with the humanity of Jesus. And I pointed out a number of scriptures where Jesus had these very real, very human emotions. And that, that it's important for us to remember that Jesus dealt with all of these emotions too. And so that it's easier for us to identify with him once we understand that. So that is sort of the summary. So that brings us to this fifth and final affirmation, which is this. We choose to accept that we live in the already and not yet. Now, many of you are going, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, the already and the not yet is really a way of referring to the kingdom of God. Uh, and it has its roots in the teachings of Jesus, which we're going to look at here in a moment. And so if you, if you think back, if you've read through the Gospels and you sort of understand the, uh, you know, you're familiar with some of what Jesus said, you will probably remember that on numerous occasions he says something like this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now if you're like me, you're kind of like, well, I'm not sure I really understand what that means. It's like, well, everybody has ears to hear, so, Right? But that isn't really what he meant when he said that. What he was really communicating was this idea that these parables of the kingdom were closed off to the minds of some people, but open to others. And so the ones that could understand them were the ones that had ears to hear. And so, um, you know, this idea of the kingdom is wrapped in this cloak of mystery, which is why I thought it was interesting that Lainey chose to play her song this morning, beautiful mystery, because that's really what this is all about. And Jesus explained some of these secrets to the kingdom to some of his disciples, but it wasn't terribly obvious always what he was talking about. And so there are really four statements, I think, that you can kind of say sort of wraps up this idea of the mystery of the kingdom. And let me stop here just for a second and say that I think mystery is a really good thing because we wouldn't want to be in a position to understand everything that there is to know about God. He wouldn't be much of a God if we could understand it all. Right? I think I've mentioned this before, but I remember 
hearing Brad Stein, who's a Christian comedian, once talking about a, a conversation he was having with an atheist. And the atheist made some statement like, well, I just can't believe in a God that I can't understand. To which Brad Stein replies, well, I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in a God that's no smarter than I am. Because if I can understand God, then that doesn't make God very smart. <laughs> right? And I think that's a, pretty, that's a pretty true statement. You know, So I think it's important that we embrace this idea of mystery, that we don't understand it all. That's why there's faith. Okay? So four statements really summarize <clears throat> the, uh, the kingdom of God as Jesus explained it. He said that the kingdom will come. But he also said the kingdom has come. But then he said the kingdom is coming immediately. At which time he also said that the kingdom will be delayed. Okay. Now, this seems somewhat contradictory, yes? How can something be simultaneously future and present? But that's precisely where part of the mystery lies. Okay. And so, wherever they, you find that there is some truth in Scripture that's in tension with something else, um, there's a danger that's going to exist there that someone's just going to try to explain it away, right? And that's what happens a lot of times um, when it comes to the kingdom. Some scholars will, wanna, will pick one of those or maybe two of those four and just kind of rest on that and then use some other means to explain away the other ones. Kind of like they don't even exist. All right? Um, but I don't think we can do that. I'm not comfortable doing that. I mean, and I'm going to show you at various times in his teaching, Jesus referred to the kingdom in each of these four ways. And so... We've got to stay true to what the text tells us. So if that's the case, then we have got to consider how all four of these things can be true at the same time, to the best of our abilities as humans, trying to understand the mystery that is God. All right. So first of all, the kingdom will come. <clears throat> so I think it's important to, to sort of lay out at the beginning that Jesus thought in terms of sort of two worlds. He thought of the present and the future, okay? And so this is very similar to the viewpoint that Daniel expresses in the book of Daniel. He talks about um, this future kingdom was sort of the coming of the Son of Man, right? That's a phrase that Jesus spoke that Daniel, in the book of Daniel, first speaks. So it's sort of like J Jesus is quoting Daniel, in a sense, of referring to this coming of the Son of Man. And so this really tells us that the kingdom is of the end times. Now the Jews believed that there was going to be this time of great crisis that would precede the coming of the Messiah. And so they were, really think of them as the birth pangs of the future age. The things that Jesus taught fit right into this context. The Son of Man comes in that very last period. Okay, So talked about how the glorious coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning that comes from the east and is visible even to the west, and that he will come on the clouds of heaven to gather his people. He warned the faithful to be ready at all times because this could happen 
at any, at any time. Jesus explained that unbelievers are going to be taken by surprise at this sudden judgment that's going to occur, but believers should read the signs of the times and be ready to share the glorious destiny of the coming Son of Man. He said that he will sit on the throne and judge all the nations when this happens, that he will appoint a kingdom for his disciples and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. There are some passages in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the gathering of God's chosen people and the judgment of the wicked all coming when the Son of Man comes. And we see these same themes and ideas repeated in a lot of Paul's letters, especially the two letters that he wrote to the church at uh, Thessalonica. They're all clearly about the future, right? There's a future final coming of Christ at the end of the world. And if you read Revelation, pretty much says the same thing, right? There's going to be this time of great world tribulation that precedes the coming of the messianic kingdom. Talks about, you know, the power figures of this world are going to try to get away from the wrath of the Lamb. There's a rider on a white horse that comes with eyes like flames of fire that are going to destroy the enemies of God, and so forth. So the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus and all of his apostles believed in this future, final, dramatic intervention of God, which will end this world and inaugurate the next. Well, that settles it, right? Well, not so fast. Because Jesus also said that the kingdom has come. It's here. And so what we have to remember is that the emphasis that's in the New Testament about this idea of a future kingdom is almost equally balanced. If you look at the number of verses and, and the words that are spoken, it's of almost equal proportion with similar statements emphasizing the presence of the kingdom. Really, as a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So you got these two things are almost perfectly balanced when you read through Scripture. <clears throat> if you read through the Old Testament, you'll note that the prophets often talk about the day of the Lord, which is this future breakthrough of the kingdom. The, uh, the whole Jewish nation waited for hundreds of years for this to happen. There were other people that preceded Jesus that came and they claimed to be the Messiah. They were there to fulfill this promise, but they didn't. But then Jesus came, and what did he say? The kingdom of God is among you that's when the Messianic age had finally arrived. Now the fact that this kingdom that's supposed to be coming in the future and now all of a sudden is here is kind of strange, certainly unexpected. It's unsettling in its nature. And where was that unsettled nature of the kingdom felt most? Well, it was felt in all the demonic powers. Remember, Isaiah promised the release of the captives would occur when this happens. And so this whole concept of casting out of demons 
is a sign of the presence of the kingdom. Remember when Jesus encountered the two uh, possessed men um, and one of them cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, they knew he was early. They're like, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen for a while, but it's happening now. And so what you see is that the New Testament is full of these statements about fulfillment, right? That's what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. They were waiting for this to be fulfilled, okay? Remember, from the time of Malachi until the time of Matthew, we figure roughly about 400 years. And as far as we can tell, God was silent for 400 years. Spoke through the prophets before that, and then didn't say anything. Now suddenly, in the midst of this silence, John the Baptist shows up. And evidently with a power and anointing that was equal to that of any of the Old Testament prophets. And so John announces the coming of the Messiah. And then he points to Jesus. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well then, all of a sudden, John is beheaded. And the power and authority that the people had seen in John is now resident in Jesus. And so, no longer was this kingdom a future hope. It's a present reality. And so if you were to look at the Old Testament and you sort of sum it all up as being a time of the law and the prophets, which was what they focused on, now, well, that time's over. This new time had arrived. Jesus came and he brought with him this presence of the kingdom. And, you know, as John announced the coming of the kingdom, the whole of redemptive history just changes dramatically you know, from this area, this era of promise to this era of fulfillment. All right? Now, what in our popular culture do we talk about that is really the delineation of those two eras? It's the basis for this. B.C. and A.D. Right? The era of promise was B.C., before Christ. The era of, um, of fulfillment is after Christ, or Anno Domini. And so, you know, the fact that this kingdom has already come and yet still is going to come somehow is part of that mystery that we talked about. They seem to be contradictory, and they sort of represent the two extremes of the teaching that you'll find in scripture about this subject. Once again, they stand in this, there's this tension between those two, because it's like, well, now wait a minute. That can't possibly, both of those things cannot be true. But, we're not done yet. There were still two more ways that Jesus talked about the kingdom, as if this wasn't hard enough. He said that the kingdom was coming immediately. 
which is almost but not quite the same as saying that it's already arrived. And then he said that the kingdom is also delayed, which doesn't go as far as saying that it's only going to arrive in the distant future. And so these two statements lie somewhere between the other two statements. So if you think of the first two as out here and the second two is kind of in the middle of those two somehow. Um, so let's briefly look at these, these second two. And then we're going to bring all of this back into this concept of hard conversations. But I feel like this is important teaching. This is, this is really one of the core teachings of vineyard theology. Right? This was part of the, what I think the vineyard really gave to the body of Christ, is this teaching on uh, the kingdom of God. I mean, that has sort of been the distinctive that has been a part of the vineyard since its uh, beginning. So I think it's important that we, we sort of get a handle on this. And I'm not trying to make you all experts on this. I mean, I've been looking at this for a long time, and it still is like, <laughs> you sit there, you're trying to process what all this, how all this can be, can be the way it is, but you just have to at some point accept the fact that it's a mystery and that I accept it on faith. So, the next idea was this idea that the kingdom is coming immediately. Well, Jesus said that the kingdom was at hand. Remember when he said that? It was in Mark. It's, which means it's about to come at any minute. It's so close that its immediacy actually touches the present. And this phrase, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, has been translated a number of ways. In some translations you may see that the kingdom of God is upon you, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. But it's so close that the time for it has been fulfilled. And so if you remember in Matthew, Jesus told his disciples that the kingdom would come in their generation before they had finished going through the cities of Israel. Luke 21.32, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Kingdom is close. However, it's also delayed. And so Jesus taught, and this is particularly in this, there's a, probably the longest teaching of Jesus that you find anywhere in scripture is in, starting in Matthew 21, and it goes on for about four chapters, through chapter 25. And Jesus is really talking about the end times in this particular section of scripture. And it's in this section where he says that the kingdom is going to be delayed. He says that the Son of Man comes after the tribulation, but before the tribulation, a considerable period is required for nation to rise against nation and for the gospel to be preached to all the nations. He told the parable of the virgins, the five wise and the five foolish virgins, and the foolish ones were caught without oil. Why? Because the bridegroom was delayed. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. He told about the parable of the talents. Remember where he gave each one a certain number of, of talents to invest? And we are told that after a long time, the master of those servants returned. 
All right? So the kingdom is delayed. So now let's see if we can kind of put this all back together. First of all, Jesus stated categorically that no one but the Father knows the exact timetable of the kingdom. Not even Jesus, when he was on earth, knew it. So then, how do we understand how these four different ways of looking at the kingdom um, make sense? So, really, I think what it comes down to is that we have to sort of acknowledge that this mysterious nature of the kingdom consists of the fact that it's always here, almost here, delayed, and in the future. And all of those things are happening at the same time. And so the fact that the kingdom has come but is still to come creates this unexpected delay in which one world continues while the other world, the next world, is already present in it. If you think about it, this lines up perfectly naturally with this whole concept of living above and below the line that I talked about for a number of weeks you know, several months ago, right? Two, two worlds sort of overlapping, if you want to think of it that way, one above the line and one below the line. One we don't see because it's in the spirit realm, and the second is the physical, right? And so where all of these things have happened for us, that Jesus did happen above the line in that spirit realm. That era has already begun. Now, the Old Testament prophets really expected that the arrival of one age was going to coincide with the termination of another. But that's not what happened, because when we look at what happened in Jesus, we're forced to conclude that the age to come began in some mysterious way prior to the termination of the present age. And so there's this interim period that exists between the coming of one kingdom and the consummation of the other. And so, in a manner of speaking, the kingdom is already here, but not yet here two ages coexist. The age to come is present, but the present age hasn't ended yet. Now, getting back to this topic of having these hard conversations. So, does that mean we just give up? Do we just let the other side win the argument and hope for the best? Well, first of all, I would say, of course not. <laughs> if you are a person of the kingdom, then you should be endlessly hopeful. Even in the most difficult of situations, our God has shown power and faithfulness to win the day. Right, Michelle? We persevere, we work for the kingdom, and we never give in. I will quote, um, I'm still reading the Churchill biography, so you're still going to get Churchill quotes. <laughs> so here's the one for today. 
This was in an address he gave to his old school, uh, Hera, when he was prime minister. He said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. That's the way we have to approach the kingdom. That's the way we have to approach this concept of having these difficult conversations with people. Right? You know, we can't ever just sort of give in to the idea that, well, that's just the way it's going to be. Second, I would ask God for eyes to see this whole struggle in a different way. You know, there was an awful lot of times in Scripture where people would come to Jesus and they would ask him, uh, to choose one way or another when it came to some particular social or political or religious issue. It could have been something related to Jewish law. It could have been something related to Roman taxation. And they were always looking for him to pick a side. But what did Jesus do? He had this remarkable ability to kind of perceive a situation in a way that nobody else had really thought about that left everyone kind of going, whoa, whoa. I didn't see that coming. Right? He had this insight that was amazing. And so I think if we will ask God for those kinds of eyes to see, okay, Lord, show me, what are you trying to do in this situation? What are you trying to say here? What do you want one of me in this situation? And third, believe in the actual power of prayer. How many times do we say this? Right? Prayer is not merely a last-ditch effort when we can't think of anything else to say or do. And I think I've said it before. I'm as guilty of doing this as the next person. You're in the midst of some kind of struggle and things are not going well and it's just like, oh, you know, I probably ought to pray about this. What? Like right now. Yeah, like right now. <laughs> Lord, please fix the static. <laughs> Jesus already knew how hard unity was going to be. That's why he prayed that prayer very specifically over 2,000 years ago. And what came to me as I was sort of working on this and preparing was, and I can't remember the exact saying, but there's a saying in retail sales that goes something like, you know, the best way that you can cement a customer relationship is when you solve a problem for them. Right? There's, uh, you can offer great customer service that uh, meets their needs every time, and chances are they'll remain a loyal customer. But if there's a problem and you fix the problem for them and you do it in a way, uh, you know, that's fast and, and, and just kind of takes care of everything for them, now you have cemented a relationship with that customer that's going to be really hard to break. And so it, it led me to think that, you know, perhaps the best way to strengthen a friendship or a relationship is going to be in how you navigate the disagreements that you have with them. 
we need to keep in mind that our ultimate goal is to bring people, other people, into the kingdom, right? And you can't do that if you adopt a my way or the highway approach to every argument that you get into. It also led me to, to kind of think about um, a friend of mine, and I've mentioned him before. Some of you know him. His name is Daryl. And um, Daryl grew up not believing in Jesus, not really even having much, wanting much of anything to do uh, with God. The situation, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but Daryl's grandfather had been a preacher. It was the classic preacher runs away with the piano player, leaves his wife, who was Daryl's grandmother, well, of course, Daryl's father at this point goes, I don't want anything to do with church. If that's the way Christians act, I don't want anything to do with it. And so that's the, that's the home that my friend grew up in. Was just, no, you know, we're not, church was just not even thought about on a Sunday. And so then Daryl came and um, his wife actually was a very staunch believer. And, you know, Daryl is, was a, is a super nice guy. And so he just kind of let her, you know, do her thing. And he was happy doing his nut thing, his atheist thing, I guess. Although he liked to refer himself as, um, as, a, as a pagan. That was his favorite term for himself. And so um, she got or he got introduced to several of us who played on the worship team at this other church. And... Um, because Daryl was a musician, we just kind of got to know him, and we invited him to come and, and start to play with us. And so he, then he started to refer to himself as our token pagan. <laughs> so he was like the church's token pagan, right? And actually, I think, took some pride in thinking of himself that way. Um, and none of us ever tried to push faith on Daryl, if you knew Daryl, if you know Daryl, you would know that you don't really probably push much of anything on him. He's fairly set, strong-willed. But what I found out later was that it was through the course of just being his friend and through having conversations with him that he would make some comment about some, the way he thought things were. And... Um, without getting into an argument with him about it, I would just say something along the lines of, well, I could see that. Have you thought about this? Or what about this? And all I would do was just put an idea out there that had something to do with God and just kind of let it hang, right? Not, not press into it much, but just kind of let it sit there and let him think about it. And... I found out many years later, and it wasn't just me, there were others that I think were doing the same thing, and my friend Kevin in particular. And Daryl came to faith. And the reason he said he came to faith was because of those conversations where I just kind of didn't, didn't challenge him, you know, in any kind of a really hard way, didn't necessarily agree with everything he said but offered an alternative viewpoint 
in such a way that made him think about it. And so I think that's, that's the lesson, you know, and I wish I were always that adept in, at dealing with hard conversations. I'm not. I got lucky <laughs> once. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a good reminder of how to have those kinds of conversations with people, whether they're about faith or not. And that is, rather than trying to beat the other person you know, down with your viewpoint, just offer a, an alternative and let them, let them think about it. People are pretty smart, you'll find. And, you know, oftentimes they'll come to their own conclusions independent of your, you know, urging, uh, however strenuous you try to be. Um, so I hope this, this series has helped, uh, at least given you some tools to sort of think about how do we go about having these kinds of, of conversations with people because it's clearly not going to go away. You know, I don't think this polarizing society, culture that we live in is going to disappear anytime soon and we're all just going to sit down and sing Kumbaya together. It'd be nice if that's what happened, but I'm not thinking that's going to happen, right? So the need to be able to communicate in this culture is going to become more and more important. And so hopefully, like I said, you now have some tools that you can use to sort of navigate some of these conversations and, uh, and do so in such a way that's God-honoring, right? And I'm sure, I'm fairly confident in saying that I'll bet your stress level goes way down at the same time um, if you'll do this. So, I was thinking about kind of what ministry time today uh, would look like. And I don't know if you are familiar, some of you pay attention to the church calendar, some of you don't, maybe didn't even know there was a church calendar. Not, I mean, not our Harmony church calendar, but the Big C church calendar. And on the Big C church calendar, today is Pentecost. Um, kind of, I guess, what you would call the original Come Holy Spirit Day. <laughs> um, and so what I felt like God wanted to do today was, as we sort of enter into this time of, of worship and prayer, is that, you know, if that's something that you desire, if you would like more of the Holy Spirit, then I'm going to ask some folks, actually, I would ask you now to please come forward and, and be prepared um, to pray. And if that's something that, that, that you want more of, then I would encourage you to, uh, to, uh, to come and get prayer. Thank you. Um, and so like I talk about you know, every Sunday, we're, uh, we're just going to kind of go into this time now and, and you're free to do whatever the Lord lead you to do. If it's time to go, then you may go. If you wish to stay and, and just kind of kind of soak in God's presence, you're welcome to stay and do that. You're also invite you once again to come tonight. Um, 
for Holy Spirit Night where we have a couple of hours that are really just devoted to that idea of, of encountering God. And uh, you are all welcome, certainly, to do that. Uh, and if you want prayer for anything, whether it's a touch of the Holy Spirit or simply uh, you, your ankle hurts, <laughs> you need God to heal your ankle, uh, you can come and do that. So let me pray, bless us, and then we can uh, go from there. So Father, I thank you. I thank you for the mystery that is the kingdom. Father, I thank you for the insight that your word gives us. That if we study it, we can at least begin to see just how beautifully and wonderfully complex your creation is. Help us to see more of that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that as we read your word, we can understand it at a deeper level. I ask you to bless each person here. Let them experience you and your love in a new and different way. Thank you for each person. Touch them both here and as they go out. Let them be bringers of your kingdom. That they would bring your kingdom to bear in situations that they encounter as they go about their uh, daily duties. Give you thanks and praise, Father, and lift all of this before you now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.